Why don't we commit our time to the Lord? Dear Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that we are not orphans, that you have given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to empower Christian living, uh, to convict of sin, to guide us, to protect us, and to comfort us. We pray now, Father, that we would be filled and controlled by your Holy Spirit, that our minds could receive, our hearts could commit, and our lives could obey what you have for us in Titus. We thank you for this little book that's full of much truth that is so relevant for today. And we pray that as we consider uh, some summary ideas, some wrap-up, and some questions, that you would grant to us grace to continue to learn. Give us a teachable spirit this evening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I thought we would do is um, read through the whole book. It's only three chapters. And same way, verse at a time, um, I'll come to you so we can record your reading. And then we'll go from there. So someone to read one verse one. One verse one. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to bring faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Two. And the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised ages ago. Three. It hath in due times manifested his word through preaching which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. For Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Five. For this reason I want to agree that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Six. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Seven. He must not be arrogant or He must not be a heavy drunk, drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. Eight. Instead, he must be hospitable in love with what is good, self-controlled, fair, and the holy life discipline. Thank you. Um, he has been taught that he may be, may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Thank you. Ten. Full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Eleven. They must be silent because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Twelve. One of them shall even a prophet of their own said, the Christians are always lying. You'll be so bad. Um, Thirteen. The saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith. Fourteen. 
pay no attention to Jewishness or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Fifteen. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. 2 verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with the sound doctrine. 2. Three. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Four. So they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. Five. To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Six. Seven. In all things, showing themselves a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Sound in speech which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back. Ten. and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Eleven. Twelve. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with self-control, right conduct, and devotion to God. Thirteen. Fourteen. Fifteen. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, that no one disregard them. Three verse one. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Two. To to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Okay. Um, three. Thank you. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, Spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Four. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Five. Saved us not because of works done by us in unrighteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Six. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us because of what Jesus Christ our Savior did. Seven. So that being justified, Go ahead. so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Good. Eight. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. 
Nine. These things are good and profitable unto men. Nine. But shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Ten. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. Eleven. After that, have nothing more to do with them. Knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. Twelve. When I sent Athamas or Tychicus, then do your utmost to visit me at Nicopolis. For there I have decided to stay for the winter. Thirteen. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Fourteen. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Fifteen. All who are with me send you greetings. Greet your fellow believers who love us. May grace be with all of you. Amen. Thank you so much, everyone, for taking a turn to read. That is the book of Titus, and that is the best way to study the word is to, if you can, read consecutively through the whole book to get the context, the thrust, the themes, the repeated words of emphasis, and so on. So what I thought I would do at this point, before I open it up to questions, is just to remind you that um, we had some basic takeaways that uh, we have seen together in the book so far. And uh, we have seen, okay, so far, these are some of the takeaways we've seen. And if you want to comment on any of these, just remember which one you want to comment on. Or if you have a question on any of these, let me read them all through. And maybe you'll think of, oh, I want to speak to that. Or, oh, I want a question about that. So these are some of the takeaways. Number one, bond servant. Number two, the faith. Three, study the word of God for yourself. Four, be godly. Five, pray Titus 1 for your pastors. Six, be a cohesive family. Uh, Seven, grow your inner purity. Eight, toss away man-made religion. Nine, accept that you are a spiritual teacher. Ten, guard your character and your mouth. Eleven, don't hide behind your age. Twelve, are you living cheap or costly grace? Thirteen, Jesus' special interest and involvement in getting you out of the slave marketplace of sin. And then... 14, and last, are you, am I, zealous for zealous, worthy things? So does anybody have a question, either about one of the takeaways, or about a verse in Titus, or about a concept in Titus? I don't know if I'll have all the answers to your questions, but if I don't, I'll just say I'll have to research that. So um, anyone with a question? Pastor. Yes, the question is, could I make any comments about cheap and uh, costly grace? 
It's interesting that uh, as I was reading through Titus again uh, this evening before class, that five times the doing of good deeds is mentioned. 2 verse 7, in the context of young, uh, older men ministering to younger men. In 7, in all things show yourself to be example of good deeds. And then in verse 14 of chapter 2, who gave himself, Christ, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. There's twice. And then 3 verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And then in chapter 3 verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things I want to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. This is the fourth occurrence of this. And then skipping down to the second last verse, 314, and let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs that they may not be fruitful. The person who doesn't live costly grace to understand that grace cost the Godhead everything. Uh, God the Father had to send God the Son. God the Son had to be willing to come to earth to live homeless, to live in poverty, to live in rejection, to live in um, all these things that are so difficult. Shame, uh, to live in uh, really being called a lunatic by the people he grew up with, which is an interesting thought, basically, that in the little town of Nazareth, which I visited with Beth, it is a backwater place. It is dusty. I don't see how they could grow crops. I think it was like a cereal bowl turned upside down. It was just the ground fell away in this little village. And I must be honest, when I saw Nazareth, the first thought I had after I drank in all I saw was if Jesus played soccer, he had to chase the ball a lot of times because the whole town goes like this. But anyway, so he had to empty himself of uh, the use of his divine attributes. So the person who uh, understands the costliness of grace to God is responsive to the grace of God in salvation by this book is stressing being about the good deeds that God has prepared. And Ephesians 2.10, after Ephesians 2.8 and 9, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 10 says, For we are his workmanship. The Greek is poema, from which we get our English poem. So you are a poem if you are saved. You are a one of a kind. No two poems are the same. But what is the same is that we are to find the individual good works that God prepared beforehand that each of us should do. Have you found the good works that God from eternity past prepared for you to do? How do you do that? You seek the Lord in prayer. You stay in his word. You seek the counsel of mature believers. 
What do they think your spiritual gift is? How could they serve, or how would they see you serving in this local church? Um, realize you're planted in the neighborhood you're planted in because God has good works for you to do in that neighborhood, etc. So to answer your question, Pastor Tommy, the person who lives seeing God's grace as being costly, that he first or she sees this cost, the God had everything. Also, they say, I've been saved for a purpose, to bring glory to God and to do the good works that God planned for me to do before I was even born. And that's the positive. The negative of the person who uh, will live seeing grace as costly is they won't abuse God's grace. Abuse of God's grace is the approach that I have this besetting sin, I have this sin that... um, really wants to dominate my flesh, but I'll just give in because God will forgive. I'll high-handedly sin because that sin has already been paid for. And so the Christian that has that mindset about sin is not living in light of the costly grace of God, but cheapening God's grace. And um, that's what they were doing in... Uh, the two churches in Galatia, the region of Galatia, they were abusing God's grace that way. They were sinning willy-nilly, thinking Christ died for this sin, so I'll just go ahead and, and commit it because I like to commit it. The other place we see that, one of the other places we see abuse of God's grace to make it cheap is in Romans 6 when it says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might increase. The person who cheapens God's grace says, well, if sin magnifies God's grace, I will just allow myself to sin to better magnify God's grace. And in that verse in Romans 6.1, it says, after, or 6.2, after verse 1 of chapter 6 in Romans, it says, shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? The second verse, first part in Greek says, meganoito. Meganoito is the strongest negative in the Greek language. So verse 2 is saying, don't think that way. (laughs) God forbid. By no means. It was the strongest negative. So to wrap up uh, the answer for now at least, unless there's a follow-up question, cheap grace is to treat God's grace in Christ lightly as it it, uh, works as well a way out in our sin. Costly grace is to realize that although salvation came to me from the grace hand of God through the finished work of Christ, I am not going to abuse God's grace. I am going to live holy as the Holy Spirit makes that possible, as obedience to the Word of God makes that possible, as accountability within the family of God makes that possible. So we are to be holy because that is God's will for each of us. And holiness and the pursuit of holiness is to give grace, uh, acknowledgement of God's grace that it costs the Godhead everything. Follow-up question or another different question? That's a great question. Another way to say that is the grace of God should produce love for God, not license to sin. The grace of God should 
produce love for God and not a license to sin? Thank you for the question. Someone else? Oh, thank you. Oh, okay. You emailed me that question, and I didn't quite understand what you were asking about. Uh, Well, cohesion means to stick together. And when I used to watch my mom uh, make Christmas baking, she would always want the batter to stick together before she baked it. And if it didn't stick together, she'd add more eggs or whatever you add to make batter stick together. And uh, I just like to eat it. I don't know how to bake it. Um, Cohesion is sticking together, Crystal. And where that came from was um, in chapter 1, I believe. Let's see. Uh, Yes, chapter 1, verse 11. Speaking of rebellious men in verse 10, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, that was uh, Judaizers who said, okay, Jesus did a lot, I believe in what he did, but you have to add circumcision and all the rest of the Old Testament law for Jews to complete what Jesus did. And there are some Protestants on this island who believe that, who will remain unnamed. They take the Old Testament law, dietary law, Sabbath law, and that law, and say, yeah, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, but we have to add those things from the Old Testament to um, complete or to fulfill salvation. Um, We don't believe that. We believe that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law, and when we receive his righteousness, we have total acceptance by God, for Jesus' sake, and we are no longer no longer under the law as Israel was. The church is different than Israel. Now that leads up to the question of what is a cohesive family. Uh, verse 10, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. What do they do? Or what, what must we do with them? Who must be silenced? Because they're blurring the gospel. They're mixing up people about the good news. They're adding to Christ. So I'm not getting to the cohesive family, but I think it's important that we say that when we add to Christ, it's legalism. Uh, Legalism says you have to add something to the finished work of Christ to be loved by and accepted by God. We don't believe that. We believe Christ's finished work makes us acceptable to God. And so we don't want to be legalistic. We want to be biblical in understanding salvation. I'm going to get there, Crystal. I'm working on it. Verse 10, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. This is saying that these false teachers get onto Crete and their false teaching, legalism, Judaism, is corrupting whole families. How does that happen? Except whole families are tight together. Whole families talk to each other. Whole families are in proximity to each other. A a Christian families in the church at Crete weren't fractured 
There weren't parts of families that didn't talk to other parts of their family. So the application is, let's be cohesive families. So the text says, don't let silence false teachers who are hurting families. Let's be positive. Let's let right doctrine help whole families. And really, one of the things that Beth and I really enjoy about the Bahamas versus even uh, America or Canada, you guys, I think, are good about being cohesive. Some of you, maybe the majority, I don't know, every week there's a day you all get together and cousins are with cousins and brothers are with brothers and sisters are with sisters and sisters are with brothers and grandparents are there. That is great. Keep doing that because you can affect each other for the good. What did you hear in church on Sunday? And Uncle... Uh, Walter tells the family assembled for a dinner, I learned at church about the cost of salvation. Uh, what did you learn in a different church past this Lord's Day past? I learned about the importance of confessing sin, and then you talk about that. That When co- families are cohesive, you're enough, enough together that you talk to each other. You spend time with each other. Now I realize that some of you, some of your family you love very much are on a family island, and that's really hard, or maybe in Canada or America, just do your best. Be cohesive with the family you can be cohesive with here on New Providence. But that's what I meant, uh, Crystal, that we'd be tight families, that we'd like spending time together, that we would be able to encourage each other in right belief from the Bible and right walking with God. Good. That's a good question. Someone else? Do you have a question about any particular verse in Titus? Do you have a question about any theological theme in Titus? Um, For you listening by tape, all the class are looking at their Bibles, which is a teacher's dream. To see the class looking at their Bibles is a teacher's dream. Any question? No? Just stretching? If this was an auction, you might have bid, bid on that item. Any question? Okay, you keep thinking. If we have any questions, do you have any questions about anything else, biblical or theological? Again, I won't promise I'll have an answer, but I'll, I'll try. Let's expand it beyond Titus. If a verse you're wondering about, a Bible application of a verse you're wondering about, Denise? Yes. So that's what you would like, and I, I, Denise said, "Why don't we go back into Titus and look at some things that I might pick out as theological things to expand?" All right. So um, we've talked about bond servant in one verse one. We've talked about um, an overseer in verse seven. That is. 
um, also translated in other parts of the New Testament as uh, a bishop or as um, an elder in our setting or as a pastor in our setting. We have 11 pastors, including me, and these men have been deemed as growing in Christ, as knowledgeable in God's Word, and they have been through theological and biblical training. Then they are ordained before the congregation hands are laid on them to say that we recognize that these men are walking with God, are have a heart for Christ and a heart for His people, and... Um, Basically, that lovingly they want to have a servant leadership role in your lives and in your family's lives. So that's what an overseer is. Um, let's skip down and see. And if there's questions, just uh, call out. Um, I imagine it must have been verse 12 uh, of chapter 1. Can you imagine living in a place where one of the prophets of that island, Crete was a, a small island, remember, 25 miles wide in the Mediterranean Sea, and I think it was 12 miles north to south, so um, bigger than New Providence, but not a very big place. And there was a, um, a prophet, um, a Cretan prophet, who said, one of themselves, verse 12, a prophet of their own, a Cretan, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. How would you like to pastor a church in that neighborhood? Do you know how many years before the writing of the book of Titus that that prophet made that pronouncement? 600 years before the book of Titus. 600 years worth of this. Now, you probably, if I say, what are the uh, systemic common sins of the Bahamas? Systemic means a system. And I realize that every country has systemic sins. One of the systemic sins of Canada is alcoholism. Another systemic sin of Canada is mistreating Aboriginal people, the original Canadians who lived in Canada before the white man appeared. Another systemic sin in Canada, I'm saying this because I'm Canadian, uh, and I'm wanting to show you that when I ask you for systemic sins of the Bahamas, I'm not putting the Bahamas down. A systemic sin of Canada is secularism. Secularism is that man is the most important. And so someone who says God is the most important in Canada is ridiculed, is scoffed, is written off as being uneducated and unsophisticated. A systemic sin in Canada is a, 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 a rivalry at best and a hatred at worst between French, French and English Canadians. Because when the British defeated the French in our country's history, the British philosophy of war was not to make the conquered like the conqueror, but to give cultural and language diversification with the conquered. So the British 
encourage the French, although they were defeated in war, to have their French language, their French culture, and all of that. Well, that has created some unique problems and some systemic sin for Canadians because English Canadians are not fond of French Canadians. And French Canadians are not fond of English Canadians. So these are some systemic sins of Canada. What are some systemic sins of the Bahamas? Sweethearting. Which, which is which is marital infidelity, correct? Marital infidelity, serial marital infidelity, right? It's not just once with one woman, it's multiple adultery with multiple women. Yes, that's, that's terrible. Um, and you said alcoholism. Yes, I saw a man walking down uh, Fifth Terrace today that was just barely able to stand straight. And I just felt so badly for him that he is using alcohol to try to anesthetize his pain, whether he's unemployed or whether he's having real problems at home or whatever the case might be. He's just trying to kill his pain by drinking alcohol and he's his faculties are lost as he's drunk. I felt sorry for him. Um, sweethearting, alcoholism, systemic sins of the Bahamas, gambling. Gambling. And the government, before I got here, the government did a referendum and the people of the Bahamas said they didn't want legalized gambling and the government said we're going to anyway. And that is, that is not a partisan comment. I don't understand the political parties yet. So I'm not running down a particular party. That is a systemic problem of, of, uh, greed. By the way, gambling is the government's tax on greed. Government tax on greed is gambling. Uh, government sanctioned gambling. Because, God made us to work. Um, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had work to do before they fell into sin, right? But when they fell into sin, the work became harder for the man, the sweat of his brow, right? But there was work to do before they fell. So God invented work. Work is good for us. And a, a New Testament theology of work that I would suggest you consider is that we work an honest day for an honest dollar we save, we look after our family, and whatever is left over, we share with others in need. To me, that's what the New Testament teaches. An honest day's work for an honest day's dollar, proper saving, proper caring for your family's needs, whatever's left over, give to the needy. When someone says, I, I want money for, I don't want to work an honest day. I don't want an honest day's wage for working. I'm going to go into that place on the corner and try to get the money that way. That is greed. That may not be popular, but that's, that's how I see it. When I, in the States, when I would buy gas at a gas station and there'd be all these, there'd be all these uh, lottery tickets like they're numbered, like up to 40. And the person ahead of me, of course, when I'm in a hurry, he wants to order two 40s and 137 and oh, four number fives. 
And then he scratches them in front of the cash register. Right, so that drives you crazy. But then when I get to the counter, the clerk says, would you like a lottery ticket? I said, oh no. I said, I pay enough taxes. And uh, she says, what? I said, oh yeah, I pay enough taxes. Those things are government taxes on the greedy. That's how I see it. So how do we get there? Systemic sin, right? So whatever we would come up with, Jesus died for those sins. Jesus can liberate the Bahamian who falls into those sins. Remember we talked about redemption, that Gomer, Hosea's wife, was naked on the safe block for sex trafficking all of her days, and there she was, and God, God who told uh, Hosea to marry her in the first place and that she would do that as a prediction, then God brings Hosea to the auction. And there's his wife, and he pays the price to buy her out of the slave marketplace of sin, and he puts clothes on her, and he loves her, and he walks her away and says, I love you, and I forgive you, and I want you to be part of our family like you used to be. That is the Savior we have. That whether it's gambling or sweethearting or alcoholism or any other systemic sin in this nation, Jesus is willing and able to take that person and to take that person out of that slave marketplace and set them free to do the will of God. And that's beautiful. That is, that's magnificent. Any comments further? Questions? Yes. God doesn't overlook any sin, and so he doesn't overlook sweethearting. And what we want isn't the Bahamian way. We want the Bible's way. We want God's way as found in his word. And um, I can only imagine the negative fallout of sweethearting over all the years that it's happened. Um, Every man should have maternity leave. And if a man has multiple ladies pregnant, he would be set for life. Don't have to work. Is that is that legislated or is that talked about? In the union, the, the labor, uh, some of the labor laws, uh, and some of the NID uh, labor laws, they do permit paternity uh, for the father uh, if it's necessary. Yeah. Do, does the father have to be married to the woman with child? Not necessarily, as long as he can prove that he fathered the child. Well, this is getting worse. Yes, I'll repeat it. Apparently some unions have a provision in their contract with their union members that if 
It can be proven by a paternity test that their union member is the father of a baby who is to be born, that he gets maternity leave with pay. And I said, does the lady with child have to be the union worker's wife? And no, as long as paternity proves that he's the biological father. You see, that's what happens. That's what happens when we veer off of God's way of one man, one woman for life. That's what happens. We just get in the sewer. We just get in the sewer. And we need to, and Crystal, we need to, uh, all of us, not just you, but we need to speak to this. When people try to candy coat this or uh, dilute this or rationalize this or make a story for this, we need to, you know, talk to the hand. <laughs> you know, talk to the hand. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. So we need to be salt and light. Anybody further? Harold's uh, asking if I know about the spiritual condition of the Cretans today, and I don't. But Europe is very uh, secularized, and Greece, which is the nearest um, inland country to Crete, uh, they're bankrupt. They declared they declared bankruptcy as a country, and uh, yet Europe is, which was once the cradle of the gospel, Europe, which was once the sending force to bring the gospel through missionaries to us in the uh, Western Hemisphere. Now it's a cesspool. Um, in Denmark, I know you're not didn't ask about Denmark, but in Denmark. They have had physician-assisted suicide for a long time. They have uh, people in some countries in Europe petitioning the court to kill their disabled child. So that's murdering a child not in the womb, which is terrible, of course, but that's wanting to kill a child that is in your home that has some disability. It's awful. You, we depart from God's will as found in his word, and it's a downward slope that's really slippery. Any other question before we move on? Um, last week or maybe two weeks ago but the Greeks are described as lazy unproductive and they the, they have the worst work ethics and attitude in Europe and they're corrupt it was another, I mean it was an interesting article but it was it went through and, and actually stated those facts. Wow. Thanks, Margo. So Margo's saying that in an article she read very recently that people of Greece um, are described in the article in many of the same ways that the people of Crete are described in God's Word all those years back. Because he went on to say, you know, Father, you think also decides to leave 
reunion. Please go. <laughs> yeah. Related to the, 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 the systems that are already in place that cause them to be crazy. Because I think the record to say further about the, the governance, some kind of a, um, socialism. Social um, benefits that they get that cause them to be lazy. I think, if I remember correctly, there's something to do with the whole system, like how you end up, end up. But there's a system that that's causing them to think like that, that they don't need to be a part of it. Yes. The Church of Ephesus, the letter that's written to the Church of Ephesus, described what would happen if they continued along a certain route. You know, the semblance of good works without the substance of Christ. And actually that's where they are now. Because that really, I mean, Ephesus is for a priest. Paul is saying that Ephesus, the ancient church of Ephesus, which has a letter uh, written to it in the New Testament, is part of current day modern Greece, and that the warnings of the book of Ephesians to them way back when are being played out as consequences all these uh, years later. Yeah, that's... And, and really, let's, let's just not lose focus. The only hope for Canada, the only hope for Greece, the only hope for the Bahamas is Christ. He is the only hope because he changes hearts that were stone dead before him. He changes minds, and only he can change a country. And how does he change a country? One person at a time. Prisons don't fix any problems. Right? The reseticism of prisons is striking. I don't know what the rate is in the Bahamas. That means the people who are in prison are released, they go back into prison. Or they are murdered when they're released a la vigilante justice. And sometimes they kill others. Yeah, only Christ, yeah, only Christ can change a heart. And so you may be thinking, you know, what can I do? You can share Christ with someone who doesn't know him. You can pray for someone who's not a Christian. And you can be used of God to um, help someone out of the slave marketplace of sin into the ability to obey God, the ability to love God, the ability to love others. I was talking with uh, Stephen, who is a delightful Chinese believer in our church. I hope you'll meet Stephen. Uh, he is just a breath of fresh air. He was saying that one of the things that made him come to the Bahamas was in China, where he is from. He was despondent because he saw no love between Chinese people including families, and all about money. Everything in China revolves around money. The more money you have, the more you're accepted, and so on and so forth. He said he was searching for the meaning in life. People watched Stephen. He worked for Bahamar, and the man that led him to Christ was an American um, inspector. And Stephen came to the Bahamas looking for the meaning of life. And he was at Bahamar as a translator for the Chinese uh, contractors and American inspectors. 
And uh, he was searching for the meaning of life, and he saw this American inspector on lunch with uh, earbuds and a Bible. And uh, Stephen went up to him and said, what can it hurt? And he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm listening to John Piper preach, and I'm reading my Bible. In the course of friendship over quite a while, the American contractor led Stephen to Christ for salvation. And then when Stephen wanted to get baptized, the American contractor had gone back to America, but when he heard that Stephen wanted to be baptized in the sea, he flew back to baptize Stephen. His story is going to be on Echoes of Calvary radio, uh, God willing, in December. You see a slightly built, joyous Chinese young man. You walk up to him and say, are you Stephen? You'll, you'll be so blessed to talk to Stephen. He believes God saved him, and he wants to be trained in a seminary here or in America, I guess, and go back to China as a missionary. One life, one contractor, one job site, one Bible, one iPod. You can make a difference. You may be the only believer that a person God wants to use to change a country meets. The story's told of a North Carolinian preacher in a little church. I don't even remember his name. God remembers his name. He was preaching in a country North Carolinian church, gave an altar call, and a lanky, handsome farm boy walked down the aisle to be saved. It was Billy Graham. Who's around you? Who's around me? Pray. Pray for people and then share with people. Another question? By their deeds, they deny you. And I think even if we as believers are going outside of the church, mm-hmm. we as believers, and I think it's a good thing for us to use for ourselves. Sometimes we can just focus on the rebellious men that they're talking about in Titus, but it also applies to us. Because like you were saying, if that, that inspector was not living a certain way, then Stephen would not have been able to see Christ the way he did. Amen. And so sometimes our lives are denying that we know him. And I think it's a good way for us to check ourselves every so often. That's so good, Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa is saying that it's easy to look at Titus and the warnings against Judaizers that need to be refuted and so on to forget that there's also a call to not discrediting Christ by how we live as believers. And that um, it's very important that just like the contractor at Bahamar was living out the normal Christian life by having an appetite for Scripture and a desire to spend time with the Lord even on the job site, that was credible. That was noticeable. And so when we um, blend in with the lost 
And we don't have a difference to us. We laugh at the same dirty jokes. We chase the same uh, promotions or pay scales or we fail to discipline our children like everybody else is failing to discipline our children. When we just blend in, we, are, 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 we profess our faith in Christ, but we're, we're dishonoring Jesus by the choices that we make. And so what we want to do is we want to remember costly grace, that our salvation cost the Godhead everything, and the only appropriate response to our salvation is to live a thank you kind of life to God, that what we say, what we refuse to say is a thank you to God. What we think, what we refuse to think is a thank you to God. What we say and what we refuse to say is a thank you to God. Where we get our entertainment is a thank you to God. All of those things. So thank you, Mona Lisa. That's right. Talk is cheap. Another way of saying it is talk is cheap. Talk is cheap and money by land. Can't can't argue with that. What you want him to see when you out in the public. But when you by yourself, that's when you're supposed to be yourself. Just one of these people want him Seven as a takeaway is to grow an, an inner purity. Yes. Um, what is true is that from the heart uh, issues forth the truth. Um, when when we are jostled in life, it's like the waiter who comes out of the restaurant at Baha at Bahama or doesn't have an operating restaurant, pardon me. Um, Atlantis, the, the waiter who has a tray of ice waters for the table, if he is jostled, what spills on the floor is water because there's already water in the goblets. And when we are jostled in life, what comes out of us is either the Holy Spirit or flesh. And if we go to Galatians 5, uh, Galatians 5, of course, is the classic a list of the difference between uh, the flesh and the spirit. Let me just remind us that the flesh um, is in civil war with the Holy Spirit until we see Christ. Um, Alistair Begg, one of my um, favorite Bible teachers from Chagrin Falls, Cleveland, uh, Truth for Life, if you want to find him on the internet, I just love him. And uh, he was in California speaking, and he said that he asked a well-known uh, radio voice, uh, evangelical, biblical preacher, uh, what, does, what scares him the most? And this preacher said, uh, dying a dirty old man. And Alistair was taken aback that this uh, well-known and well-respected radio uh, preacher was concerned that he would die a dirty old man. And then Alistair thought about it. He said, that is such a good prayer not to have happen because it's a battle 
uh, between our flesh and the Holy Spirit until we see Christ. First uh, John 3, 2, when we see him, Christ, we shall be made to be like him. But until we see Jesus, we have this battle, a civil war between the flesh and the Holy Spirit constantly. And it says there in, uh, in uh, um, 16 of Galatians 5, but I say walk by the Spirit. That means live controlled by the Holy Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The flesh constantly has a desire in each of us. The way you keep the flesh at bay is to live controlled by the Holy Spirit moment to moment. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh, here it is, sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. So you've got flesh within you and the Holy Spirit within you. Each has a different desire, a competitive contrary desire, and they're both at each other constantly. And as you let the Holy Spirit control you, he always prevails. He's God. For the flesh sets his desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. That means our default setting is flesh. If you don't carefully walk controlled by the Holy Spirit, if I don't carefully walk controlled by the Holy Spirit, the default position is not the Holy Spirit. The default position is the flesh. What does the flesh look like? Very clear. Now the deeds of the, verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. You can't hide them. They're out in the open. Can't be secret. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Doesn't this sound like some of the discussion we've had tonight about systemic sin in this country? Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Charlie, Charlie. Enmities, strife, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarned you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's laid out what the outward symptoms are of being controlled by the flesh. And these are not just for the lost. The lost are only controlled by the flesh. They have no alternative till they're saved. The, the, the lost are only controlled by the flesh. The lost can only be like this. The believer who has the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling, if the believer is controlled by the Spirit, then these deeds of the flesh that want to raise their ugly heads in us won't. Now, what is the opposite? What are... What are the, the deeds or the fruit, singular? See that? It's fruit. It's not fruits. It's not nine different fruits. It's one fruit. It's like looking at a mango, one fruit, and examining it so carefully, the different colors, the different shape, uh, the, the place where it joins to the, the plant, um, cutting it open and seeing the flesh and all that. That's one mango, but it has seen from nine different perspectives. It's one fruit of the Spirit, but seen from nine dimensions. Love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, Pastor Clinton's question, we're, we're getting to it. One of the main ways of cultivating inner purity is to be walking in the Spirit, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, in Ephesians, it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And some Christians say you got to get more of the Holy Spirit. And they, they pray and they pray and they pray. And some Christians say that they need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they pray and they pray and they pray. And th- these believers believe that the only way you can prove your spirit filled or baptized is to speak in tongues. Uh, we don't believe that. We believe that... Um, the spirit, the spirit of God immediately comes to indwell the uh, Christian at conversion. No delay. And you get as much of the Holy Spirit as you will ever get from the point of conversion. And so here's how I, here's how I uh, picture it. That I got gas in uh, the SUV today. And people who beg the Holy Spirit to fill them, beg the Holy Spirit to... Uh, baptize them, beg the Holy Spirit to speak in tongues. They're really asking for more gasoline in the tank of their life. But I believe what the scriptures teach is control, not amount. That the Spirit of God would have control that I would not get more of the Holy Spirit. I believe I got all of the Holy Spirit at the point of my conversion. And I don't drain the Holy Spirit. I grieve him if I don't let him control me, but I don't. there's not a drain in me that the Holy Spirit seeps out and I have to ask for more of the Holy Spirit. I don't need my gas tank refilled with gasoline. I need a new driver behind the wheel. I don't need more gasoline. I need a new driver behind the wheel of my life because the normal Christian life is the Spirit of God is in the driver's seat taking the wheel of my life and, and guiding and, and leading and, and blessing. And I'm to be in the passenger seat, and uh, those bumper stickers that were in America, uh, God is my co-pilot, that's awful. God is not in the passenger seat of your life. It better not be. God the Holy Spirit better not be in the passenger seat of your life. The Holy Spirit should be the pilot of your life. He should be steering your car. And that difference is that fast. It's that fast. So I could have the Holy Spirit driving my life, driving in on Shirley Avenue to, to the church building to work, and somebody cuts me off and have a near wreck, and bingo, I can be in the flesh. Tempted to get out of my car and give him a piece of my mind. That's my flesh, because I have flesh and you all have flesh. Don't look at me that way. You never thought of that? <laughs> It's that fast. But if I have that sense that I'm in the flesh and I want to give that guy a piece of my mind, then I say, oh, Lord. I confess a sin, my rage against the guy in the green car. I'm specific. Lord, I confess my sin of rage and my demanding of my right to have that 12 feet of pavement. When I get that mad, I'm demanding my right to have that 12 feet of pavement. Because I like it. It's a good 12 feet of pavement. By the the way, I'll get back to you. By the way, 
what I need to do is, oh God, I confess a sin, my rage toward the guy driving the green car and wanting that 12 feet of pavement more than I wanted safety for him and his kids driving in the green car. Spirit of God, please take control of my life again. That's it. One last thing. That 12 feet of pavement that I get angry over, Bill Gothard, who uh, had a seminar, Basic Institutes of Youth Conflicts, for many years, and I learned a lot from Bill Gothard in that. He said the cause of all anger is an unyielded right. An unyielded right. Now that, the exception is righteous indignation. When you hear of a person mugging an, an older lady, that is not failure to give a right away. That's just, that's not right. But otherwise, the stuff that isn't righteous indignation, I have, it's an evidence that I haven't yielded a right to Christ. That's why I get angry. So in that scenario, if I say, Lord Jesus, I, I confess to you my right, I give you my right of being on time for work. I give you my right to have no hassles going to the drive into work. I give you my right for 12 feet of pavement that that guy took. And when I give up my rights to Jesus, who, by the way, gave up every right he had, Jesus Christ gave up every right he had. God. Then it releases me from that fleshly reaction and anger. Brenda. This verse was said, as we are so we in this world today. Um, give us a give give us a light on that because you know as he is so we in this world today you don't see that reality. You know what I mean? Can you help me? I'm not quite sure what that means. That's what I'm saying that. This is what it says. As he is, so are we in this world today. Oh, okay. You're saying that we are to be like our Savior and it's to show in the, our world? Is that it? No. It's a word. I, I, don't, I can't pick it up now. Yes, fine. But it said, as he is, so are we in this world today. I'm sure that's the reason. I always say... As he is. So are we. So why are we not? You know. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm not sure of the verse segment you're talking about, but I think it, I think it does tie in that, um, you know, what, Brenda says, why aren't we like Christ? That's sort of a paraphrase. As he is, so are we. So it's capable that we can be Christ like? Is that? This is for as he is, so we. That's that's Bible. So what I'm saying is, you don't see this coming coming out of us. He's being this as he is. You know, he's this. You know, he's definitely. Okay, I think I I think I can answer now. Um, I, I, we were in danger there for a little while that a mist in the pulpit was a fog in the pew. We were danger there that a mist in the pulpit was a fog in the pew. But I think I understand. Go to Romans uh, 12. Uh, Romans 12. The, the familiar and beloved verses 1 and 2. 
I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Did Jesus do that to the Father? Did Jesus do that to the Father? He presented his body a living and a holy sacrifice to his Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, If it's possible, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. He presented his body as a living sacrifice to his Father first, but then for our benefit on the cross, right? So, now, here's, here's the deal. Now, this is where it's, it's different than the Lord Jesus. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Jesus had no risk of being conformed to this world. He was sinless. But we run a real risk of being conformed to this world. You know what I picture that like? Is if um, you take an ice cube tray and you pour water, then the water is conformed to the little squares in the ice cube tray. The world system is like the ice cube tray. And our flesh wants to just pour our lives into that thing that the world makes, the shape. And this verse says, don't be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. And why? Why? Well, what was the result of that? You'll, you'll prove what the will of God is. That which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Margot? Thank you. First John. What I was going to say was, when we don't look like Christ, it's because we are walking according to the flesh and we're letting our lives be conformed to this world. Now, what is it? First John 4.17? Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. First John 4, 17. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in this world. This is what Dr. Ryrie says as a study note to this. The believer who has practiced love during his or her earthly life will be able to approach the judgment seat of Christ without any shame. Such assurance is not presumption because he is also as, because he is so also are we in this world. That is, we are like him in love. So this is saying that if we make the choices here on earth of loving like Jesus loved, that we can have confidence when we face Christ in the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, which is a, is a uh, judgment for reward given or withheld. The great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 is a judgment for non-believers for sentencing to hell because their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is not the judgment we're talking about. The judgment we're talking about is 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 5, the bema, which is the Greek term for the rostrum, the podium, uh, the place where people in a town who were politicians would speak, 
or when the Olympic Games, the ancient Olympic Games were on, the bima was where the athletes would come to get their first, second, or third wreaths for their head. So the bima, the judgment seat of Christ, is a place where we will stand before Jesus as redeemed people one by one, and he will evaluate us with respect to our motives in his service, not the quantity of our service for Christ, but the quality of our service for Christ. Let's go there, actually. First Corinthians 3. So, Paul's writing to a messed up church in Corinth, really messed up. They lived in the flesh. They got drunk at the Lord's table. A guy was sleeping with his stepmother. Um, they were taking each other to court. By the way, I can't believe how much Bahamians take each other to court. It's sin. First uh, Corinthians 3.10. He's writing to this messed up church who are saved. They are saved. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. So Paul's not jealous. He says, I came in there early in the game. I shared the gospel. I, see, I saw a church planted, and somebody else is coming to share the gospel and help you grow as disciples. I'm not worrying about that. It's not all about me. But he says, let each person be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation of your life. Jesus Christ is the foundation of Calvary Bible Church. Twelve. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's, so it's each one before Christ, the beam, each man's, it won't be you and your wife, it won't be you and your pastor, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test, watch it, the quality of each man's work, not the quantity. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, that is, isn't burned up, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. Does that mean we'll lose our salvation? Read on. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So here's the situation. If we serve Christ with proper motives, love, humility, his glory, we'll be building with gold, silver, and precious stones. And when the testing fire at the Bema happens, those things are not burned up. And it says we'll have a reward. That reward will be in the thousand-year kingdom of Christ, the millennium, that we will have uh, duties under King Jesus that unrewarded Christians will not have, although they are in the kingdom. What about the Christian who was, it was all about him? It looked good on the outside, but it was really in his heart all about him or about her. If if the person's 15, if the man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss of reward in the future kingdom of Christ. But he himself shall be saved, 
yet so as through fire. Ever heard of J. Vernon McGee? The Bible teacher, J. Vernon McGee, had a grovelly voice. My favorite explanation of, yet he will be saved so as through fire, this is what J. Vernon McGee said. There are going to be a lot of Christians in heaven that smell smoky. <laughs> that smell smoky. So they'll be not rewarded, but they'll come to heaven. I, I would like to be rewarded. Not because I want really the reward. I want to please my master. I want it to be revealed that I'm teaching tonight for his glory and not for anything else. You can aspire to that yourself. So the verse you're asking about is saying that if we love as Jesus loved when Jesus was on earth, if that's the characteristic of our lives, love, then we don't have to be hesitant or um, fearful of that beam a judgment seat of Christ evaluation because we, if we live in love, then we will have been building ministry on things that are inflammable, that don't burn up, that are rewardable. That's a great question. And if you want to read more about this same bema, flip over a page to 1 Corinthians 5, um, or 2 Corinthians 5, pardon me, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. And it's a shorter account of the same uh, future evaluation. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, for we must all, there it is again, we must all, you don't get a note from home, you don't get a doctor's letter, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That in Greek is bima. That each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That means, that means proper motivation or poor motivation. Therefore, because of this evaluation, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. So this is saying, um, in light of the Bema, in light of being um, evaluated one day by Christ, I'm going to live carefully now, and it's going to look like love. And when it looks like love, 1 John 4, 17, I don't have to be hesitant. I don't have to tiptoe before Jesus at the Bema judgment seat of Christ. By his grace and by his spirit, I lived the best of my ability, a consistent uh, life and ministry of love. That is a good ambition. Thank you, Brenda. It's a good question. B-E-M-A. B-E-M-A. Bema. B-E-M-A. By the way, we live in a day and age when you can go on your computer and use a search engine like Google and put in B-E-M-A and it'll give you the Bible verses that where that appears. It'll give you a bit of an explanation what it is. We live in a great, great time. Anyone else? Crystal. Nothing to do with Titus, but it's more of a question. Somebody asked me, they said, we go by the Bible, right? 
That is a really common and a good question. Uh, Crystal's saying when someone says, isn't the Bible old and isn't it passed down over those years from humans, how do we know the Bible's true? Uh, the Bible was revealed over a 1,600-year time. Uh, from the beginning of the revelation God gave to the last revelation was 1,600 years. God used 40 human authors to write his word. Um, the Bible is unified. There is a plot line that you can follow in the Bible of redemption. There are no contradictions in the Bible, although people claim there are, but that when you look at them, they aren't really uh, contradictions. Time out. Yeah. Time out. I don't know if I'll remember it. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what. Would anybody help Crystal um, by listening to the future um, internet posting of this recording to transcribe the things that I'm saying? Would anybody be willing to help her? You know, you know what I'm asking? Just listen to the internet, this lesson, find what we're just talking about, and, and write it for Crystal when they listen. Anybody? Help our sister out. Raynell, thank you. Raynell will help you. I know you want it and you need it, and I'm going fast, but Raynell will help you. Isn't that great? All right. Uh, 1,600 years, 40 authors, no contradiction, discernible plot line, prophecy. The prophet Isaiah, as an example, 700 years before Christ, Isaiah 53, described crucifixion before the Phoenicians invented it. There is no other book of antiquity, that means old books, that can make that claim. And that's just one prophecy. The Bible, when it makes a prophecy about the future, it comes to pass, and not kind of, to details. That Jesus, they would gamble for Jesus' coat. That he would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the backwoods. That his garment would have no seams. That he'd be crucified. There, I think, are at least 20 messianic prophecies of Jesus Christ. 20, I believe there's more, but let's say 20. Do you know I'm not a statistician, but somebody I talked to this week used to work for, oh, it was Willie Jack, used to work for the Department of Statistics here in Nassau. But anyway, I'm not a statistician. I took a little in college and I did lousy. But if you take um, 10 prophecies of anything, and you ask, what is the random chance of all ten prophecies being fulfilled according to randomness? 
Here's what it's like. You take silver dollars and you spread them two feet deep over the whole state of Texas. Silver dollars, Texas, two feet deep, and you paint one silver dollar red before you do this exercise, and you place it, whether it's in Amarillo, Dallas, Fort Worth, anywhere you want, anywhere you want. Just sort of, I'll just put the red, the red silver dollar right here. And then you can pick how deep it is. You can pick how deep it is in the spot you pick, and the chances of ten prophecies coming true by random is one person walking the state of Texas, stopping in one place, going down to the right depth, and getting the red coin. And ten wasn't all, it wasn't just ten prophecies about Jesus, it was, I think, at least twenty. The Bible is God's book and prophecy is one of the strongest proofs. Do you have the internet? Yeah. If Crystal, if you or anybody in the class um, Googled prophecies, messianic prophecies of Jesus Christ, it'll all come up. And you'll see how many there are, where they're found. And then you can even print it off. And you can say to your coworker or your friend, well, um, this is what was predicted about Jesus centuries before. And it's all come true. So this is not a typical human book. This is God's book. And only a God who can control the future is a God who can make accurate predictions about the future. I hope that helps. I have really enjoyed being with you this fabulous five this summer. I thank you for being so uh, faithful to come. And uh, it's really been a great time uh, as your pastor to see your hunger for God's Word. And I really appreciate that. Um, God willing, we may have another fabulous five in the winter. I don't know when that is in the winter, but God willing, I think we'll have another fabulous five in the winter. And uh, is it winter here? No, it's not. No. Is there no winter here? Somebody say, hey, Pastor Rob, it's now winter. I had, okay, somewhere in there. Let's let's stand together and let's uh, hold our neighbor's hand and uh, thank God. Lord, it's such a wonderful thing to see brothers and sisters in Christ dwelling together in unity. Uh, that's where you've said you'll command your blessing. And I ask you to bless this church for your name's sake and for your glory. I pray that you would grow Calvary Bible Church through conversion growth and that we would see a lot of Stevens because of your goodness and your power. I ask you to bless each believer standing. I ask you to bless their relationships, if they're married, their spouses, if they are in a work environment, to bless their relationships there with their co-workers and with their bosses. I ask you to bless them, Lord, in their communities, in their neighborhoods where they live. I ask you to bless them, Lord, in every way that they could point to your greatness often, 
and people would have to say, God is good, and this person knows God. Lord, help us now as we go on our way to rejoice in you. Bring us back on the Lord's day to worship you in spirit and in truth, to learn more about your truth from the book of Romans. And we rejoice day unto day in all that is ours in Christ. And we pray this in his name and for his glory. And the family said, Amen. Thank you so much for coming out. Appreciate it. God bless you.